In your Bibles today, would you turn with me to Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter 5 today. We'll, in a moment, look at the first 11 verses here in Romans chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 in a sermon that I've titled, Enemies of God. Enemies of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Back in high school, I read one of the most famous sermons ever preached, and it was not my own. But I remember reading this sermon and cringing at what I read. The sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was first preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards in 1741. It was the preaching of this powerful sermon that served as the catalyst for the first great awakening. Now, the reason this sermon was highly influential during the first great awakening is because Jonathan Edwards, who preached this, he emphasized emphasized God's wrath upon unbelievers in hell using extremely graphic and vivid imagery. The underlying point of the sermon was not to describe how much the unjust were justly punished in hell, but that God has given humans an opportunity to be saved from that eternal damnation. Jonathan Edwards points out that it is the mere will of God that keeps wicked men from being overtaken by the devil and his demons and cast into the furnace of hell. And he describes it this way. He says, like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back by God's hand. Now, throughout his sermon, which I encourage you to read at some point, and I'll quote a little bit of it later on, but great, powerful sermon. Read it on your own. But throughout the sermon, he uses such powerful imagery to paint a very clear picture of how sinful every single one of us are and how close we really are to eternal damnation. He describes that our own attempts to keep us from falling into eternal damnation are never going to be enough. And he compares all of our efforts to a spider's web trying to stop a giant rock from falling. The overwhelming weight and the overwhelming pressure of hell is far too powerful for any human being to overcome through any of his own works. He talks about the realities of hell, and he doesn't do so with sugarcoating things like we do today. I honestly fear that we have watered down and that we have air-conditioned hell in the manner in which we talk about it and in the manner in which we preach about it, that unbelievers aren't afraid of hell nearly as much as they should be. We become too concerned with offending people and turning people away from church altogether that we shy away from telling the whole truth of what the Bible has to say about the real and literal place called hell. Some, some unbelievers have become entirely convinced that hell isn't even real, or if it is, that God is far too loving to send even them there. They refuse to believe on Jesus Christ. They refuse to believe and accept Jesus as the one and only way of salvation and the one and only way for eternal life. But they also refuse to believe in the literal hell. Jonathan Edwards describes that a day is coming when all will be convinced of this truth and the reality of hell. He said, however unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. 
For destruction came suddenly upon most of them, when they expected nothing of it, and while they were saying, Peace and safety. Now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else, that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given while you have been listening to this address but His mercy. Yea, no other reason can be given why you do not this very moment drop into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you even for one moment. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Many folks who have read this sermon, and that's just a small snippet of it, Many folks have read this sermon and have thought that Edward's portrayal of the threat of hell is just utterly sadistic. Such sermons today are viewed to be out of touch and are generally considered in poor taste based on modern theology. Sermons that stress the fierce wrath of a holy God that is aimed at unbelieving hearts doesn't fit with the views of today that teaches that everyone is good and that God is only loving. The atmosphere of the modern church has so drastically changed over the years to where we are most focused on self-improvement and holding to a very broad-minded view of sin. Someone has summed up the mindset of modern Christianity this way. If there is a God at all, he is certainly not holy. If he is perchance holy, he is not just. If he is holy and just... We need not fear because his love and mercy override his holy justice. If we can stomach his holy and just character, we can rest in one thing, that God cannot possess wrath. If It must be clear how wrong this mindset is. A person would have to be completely delusional to think that God would just overlook sin and disregard his own personal holiness and his justice so that he's only dealing with us out of love. But the reason we don't like to admit that is because it condemns us. 
We're now guilty if we admit that we have a holy and a just God. If God is holy, and he is. If God has even an ounce of justice in his character, and he does. How could God be anything other than eternally angry with us? That's the reality that we have to consider now. We daily violate God's holiness. We daily insult God's justice. We daily make light of God's grace. We rise and we lie down under the very blanket of the mercy that God daily provides, and then we live our lives as if God doesn't even exist. It has to be glaringly obvious how much we have displeased God. Jonathan Edwards realized the true nature of God's holiness, and that is why he preached about God's divine wrath. He taught that the main attribute that we must be possessing is that of the fear of God. He used great imagery. He painted a very clear and vivid picture of what state the unbeliever is in as he chooses to live as an enemy of God. He didn't preach to scare people away from hell, but to demonstrate the compassion of God to save those who don't deserve to be saved. Now, there should be a desire within every single believer today to warn those who are on their way to spending eternity in hell, but more than just trying to scare them out of hell, we should tell them of our Savior whose grace and mercy has provided the means for our salvation. Our passage this morning speaks about how we were all at one point enemies of God. We were all, we all stood in opposition to God. We all stood completely destined for one thing, and that is eternal judgment in hell. Your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 5. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Right there in verse number 10, he says, For if when we were enemies, for if when we were enemies, every single one of us started as an enemy to God. The Bible makes it crystal clear that we were in need of justification, that we were in need of peace because our situation before God, prior to him saving us, it was not good. It was just not only not good, but we were eternally condemned. Every one of us are born into this world. As it says there in verse number 10, we are born enemies of God. And the only hope of reconciliation is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Every one of us were exactly as Jonathan Edwards as Jonathan Edwards described, hopeless sinners, literally one breath, one wrong turn, one poor decision, one careless act away from falling eternally into the depths of hell. And the only reason that you are here and that you're saved today is not because you were able to figure out how to avoid eternal damnation on your own. It is only because God granted you grace that you did not deserve. The only reason unbelievers still wake up each morning is not because the weight of their sin isn't enough to shatter the glass floor that they're standing on and send them plummeting down the hill. They're alive today, unbelievers, because God's mercy is daily keeping them alive. Every day we live apart from God, is like walking across a wooden plank that cannot support us, which when it will break, and it will, will send us falling eternally to our death. And Jonathan Edwards, he put it this way. He said, your wickedness makes you as if you were as heavy as lead and to tend, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, because God's the only one preventing that from happening. He says, if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. The idea is when you live and continue to live as an unbeliever, as an enemy of God, the only thing between you and falling eternally into hell is air. And God's mercy is the only thing presently keeping you out of that hell. But God's mercy is not limitless. The Bible does make it clear that the only reason we are not consumed is because of God's mercy. And that his mercy is new every single morning. But God's mercy on the unsaved will not last forever. It is incredibly insulting. It is outright offensive to God to gladly receive his mercy from day to day and then continue to reject him. He is literally the reason, if you're unsaved, God is literally the reason that you are not in hell at this very moment. And yet you're living and you're breathing under the very blanket of mercy that he provides every single day as if he doesn't exist and as if he's not the one sustaining you. Think of how offensive, think of how insulting this is to God who is doing this purely out of his goodwill. God is not in the business of rewarding disobedience and unbelief. So many people are taking for granted God's mercy and then are upset when it seems to be taken away. God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. He does so only out of his good pleasure, which will be sure to fade the longer that we abuse his daily mercies. And this is why it is often necessary for people to be aware of God's wrath and that they are only one breath away from being the objects of God's wrath for eternity. Because a lot of people don't even see this. They don't even realize that they're dangling over hell by the slimmest of threads that can break at any moment or God's hand could just release it at any moment, send them plummeting eternally forever separated from God. They don't even realize it. There are several aspects of God's, God's wrath that need to be pointed out. Now, first of all, 
God's wrath is limitless. God's wrath is limitless. When you get in trouble here on earth, there are consequences that you will face. When you get a speeding ticket, there's generally a fine that you have to pay. Maybe you'll get some points on your license if you were speeding enough. You can pay the fine. You can even take some classes to get the points removed from your license, and then you're free and clear. After a certain amount of time, maybe the points go away, the, the fine is paid for, your license is free and clear without any sort of points or any sort of blemishes on it. The wrath that you suffer from humans has a limit. It reaches an ending point. The wrath of God for your sin is limitless. There is no ending to God's wrath for sin. And second, God's wrath is fierce. God's wrath is fierce. The Bible repeatedly likens God's wrath to a winepress of fierceness. In hell, there is no letdown for punishment. It doesn't get easier to tolerate the longer you've been there. Neither is pain dulled over time. Those in hell don't even become numb to the torment. The time for mercy is over in hell and the time of the fierceness of God's wrath is come and the fierceness of his wrath, wrath does not get easier to tolerate, does not get more palatable for you to stomach. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it never plateaus. There's not even a moment of levity where you get a reprieve from all the pain and the torment and the suffering. It gets worse and worse and worse with every moment that you're there. Because God's wrath is fierce. God describes the punishment and torment of hell as a place where the fire is not quenched. God's wrath is a consuming fire that never relents. And third, God's wrath is eternal. There is no end to the suffering of those that are in hell. To be exposed to God's wrath for even a single moment would be more than any of us could ever bear. And yet those in hell will have to suffer God's wrath eternally without the relief of being consumed. They don't even get the relief of dying and ceasing to exist, which would be a relief to those that are in hell, to just cease to exist. They never are consumed. And for this reason, if you and I have any sort of compassion we would grieve over the thought of even one single person being eternally condemned to hell. Charles Spurgeon once said, Never let us speak of the doom of the wicked flippantly or harshly or without holy grief. The loss of heaven and the endurance of hell must always be a theme for tears. The sad part is that the clear teachings of Scripture... And all of Jesus' warnings on the subject, you would think, would be heeded and followed. But we continue to see that that is never the case. If we're going to believe God at all, we have to acknowledge that God's judgment and God's wrath is going to be poured out on the wicked eventually. For some reason, though, people hear about hell and they think that it is something that they can somehow avoid through their own efforts. Some think that they can escape hell. Some think that maybe they're secure in their own work. Some think that their good thoughts and their good intentions will all be good enough for them to avoid hell. But the Bible very clearly teaches here in Romans chapter 5 that we, at one point before we were saved, were enemies with God. It says in verse number 10, For if when we were enemies... 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies with God and justification is the only possible is the only possible way of salvation, and it's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 1 tells us that. It says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In order for our souls to be at peace with God, which is what you need to be at, because you're either an enemy with God or you're at peace with God because he saved you by his grace. And if he saved you, it's only been by faith through Jesus Christ. In order for souls to be at peace with God, which they must be, to, they have to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Otherwise, sin is going to be judged. And our sinful condition before a holy God has us literally inches and breaths away from hell every moment we're alive and we're walking on this earth. And because too many Christians don't want to offend or don't want to terrify the unsaved, we avoid telling them about this reality of their situation as often as we see them. Now, I'm not saying that we need to yell and scream and, and tell people that, they, that their eternal damnation is what awaits them, but we shouldn't go to the opposite of extreme and never tell them about hell at all. Every situation is going to be different as far as our witnessing and personal evangelism is concerned. And sometimes it will be necessary to literally take your Bible and to hit people over the head with it. That's not always the best approach. Sometimes it calls for that. I've done that, and it's, ext it's extremely fun to actually do that. But the situation may call for it. It's not always the case that it needs to be done, but sometimes they're beating around the bush too much. I was witnessing to a friend of mine, unsaved, and been witnessing to him for a long time and witnessing to him over and over again. He knows the truth. He has even said things that he didn't realize what he said until I pointed it out to him. And then he stopped talking and went away because he realized he admitted to something that he's argued against admitting or, or believing. And it got to the point one day as I was witnessing to him, I had to stop him and I said, enough. Enough. You know what I'm saying. You know what the Bible is showing. As we're reading the Bible together, I says, you know what it's saying here. He's one of the smartest, book-smart people I know. And I, I, I didn't hit him with the Bible, but I shoved him. Physically, I shoved him. I can do that. I'm not recommending you do that to everyone you witness to. Situation is going to be different. But I, I shoved him to get his attention. And he's bigger than me, so I'm not picking on someone smaller than me or anything like that. Don't get the wrong impression. And I told him, you know what I'm talking about and what the Bible says. And he admitted that I was right, that the Bible was actually teaching what he didn't want to believe was true. And he went home and he's been reading his Bible ever since. I gave him a Bible to read it and he's been reading it and asking questions and asking questions. And I can see the Lord breaking down slowly these walls of division that he has built up where his pride has told him that he can be good enough, that he should be good enough, that a loving God, which is the impression that the world has given to him, would never be so unloving to send and condemn a person to hell, even if they are imperfect. And this is the sad part where people think that we don't come into this world enemies from God. That we come in actually in God's favor some, for some weird reason. But the truth, as it says and spells out here in Romans chapter 5, is that justification is necessary. 
peace in our lives is necessary because we're born into this world as enemies of God. The Bible very clearly teaches that we're born with a sin nature. And then just to add to that, we bring on our own personal guilt to it. And so we are stacking everything against us and God. We are enemies to every definition of the word needing to be reconciled to God and that only happens not through the collective body of work that we do as a church, as a body of unbelievers, as a single individual, as a family unit. None of that works. None of that will ever be good enough. But justification only comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Peace in your life. The enemy status is completely taken away and you become a child of God through only one way and that is through the person of Jesus Christ who has done everything necessary for your salvation to be full and complete. And this is what so many people don't want to believe. But in order for souls to be at peace with God, they must believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Sin is going to be judged. As much as you want to think that God is only loving and that he's going to sweep every sin under the rug and say, ah, I can't punish you. You're too cute. I can't punish you. You've been good. No one's good. No one is good by God's standard of goodness, which is perfection. None of us are good. Sin needs to be judged. And thankfully, the Lord has provided the substitute for the recipient of that judgment in Jesus Christ who went to the cross on our behalf. Our sinful condition, whether we realize it or not, before we're saved, literally had us inches from hell. We didn't even realize it because we were living under the blanket of God's mercy. Day to day, his hand was literally preserving us, literally keeping us away from the flames of hell. And because too many Christians are just too sick in their stomachs about talking about hell, we just avoid the topic altogether. And churches won't even talk about it. They'll refrain from talking about sin and from hell and will only focus on God's love because, let's be honest, more people want to hear about how much God loves them instead of how much God's mercy is literally keeping them out of hell. If you want people to come back to church, make them feel good, right? Don't beat them up. Don't smack them over the head with the Bible. Don't make them leave church as if they've gone 10 rounds with Mike Tyson where they just are just literally crawling out of the door because they've been beat up so much as their sin was pointed out and their weak and helpless condition was made aware to them as they literally are enemies with God thinking that things were going great. Again, it's not always the case that we need to hit people over the head with it, but we cannot be shy about telling people the truth about what their situation is with regards to their unsaved position before a holy and a just God. We need to be tactful as we approach personal evangelism and witnessing, but either way, we cannot ignore it. We often avoid the topic because we know that it'll just upset everyone when we bring it up. So the two things that we say are never spoken of at family gatherings are religion and politics. We just don't stir the pot. If we bring up politics, we know how they're going to respond. We know that it's just going to cause all sorts of tension, so we don't bring it up. Same thing when it comes to religion. We're not going to talk about God. We're not going to bring it up because we have unsaved friends and family members that we just don't want to offend. But we're okay with them burning in hell, but we just don't want to offend them at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Seriously? That's basically what we're saying. And we don't audibly say that, but when we keep our mouth shut, And when we're too afraid or too ashamed to talk about Christ and to talk about the fact that he is literally the only thing that is keeping them out of hell as unsaved people right now, we're basically saying, I could care less about your eternity. I'm just wanting to get a meal over with you. How can we be this way? 
Some people who call themselves Christians don't like to think of God as someone that will eternally punish people. Some so-called Christians think that the idea of a God who will condemn people to hell is unjust and inconsistent with Scripture. I want to know what Bible they're reading because the Bible I read teaches the exact opposite. If the notion of hell upsets you, if the justice of God rubs you the wrong way, if the wrath of God seems obscene and excessive to you, it could be very well that you're not saved at all. If you hate the wrath of God, even the idea of God's eternal wrath, what you're saying is you hate God. Because this is God's nature. This is God's character to judge sin as a holy and a perfect God. If the God you want to get on board with is only a God of love, that, I'm afraid, is not the God of the Bible. A loving God who has no wrath at all, a loving God who has no wrath and no justice and holiness is a figment of your imagination. In Romans 5.10, again, it very clearly states that we were all once enemies of God. You're not an enemy of a God who is a God of only love. Again, for if when we were enemies, we were enemies. And not a question of whether or not we were. It was a question of when we were. When we were enemies, he says, we were reconciled to God. Something changed from taking us from that enemy status to now the reconciled status. And he says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life. It very clearly teaches that we were once all enemies of a God who is a God of holiness. We don't need atonement from a God who is a God of only love. Notice again what verse 11 says now. It says, not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. We're not only reconciled, as verse 10 tells us, but we have atonement also through Jesus Christ. Again, why would we need to be reconciled? Why would we need atonement made for us if God was only a God of love? The truth is that we needed reconciliation and we needed atonement because we were enemies of God on our way to eternal damnation and hell. If God were only a God of love, he would have just swept all the sin underneath underneath the rug. He would have said, you know what, forget it all. I'm just going to turn a blind eye to it. And we could go on living however however we feel like living, but this would lead to a very one-sided relationship where God loves us and we hate him. If God never punished our sin and let us live for the pleasures of, our world, uh, of this world all of our days, we would never look to God. We would never live for Him. We would never seek to please Him. We would never seek to be in fellowship with Him. We would gladly take all the love and the mercy that He extends to us every single day. We'd abuse it and never actually look to Him in any sort of capacity. There would never be a single person. If God were a God only of love, there would never be a single person on earth who actually loved God. Because no one would ever think about God. If you did think about God, it would only be for a moment as you asked him to wipe your slate clean. And then you'd be free to go on living as you pleased. Many people live this way with this mentality about God that he is some magical genie that is just magically going to wipe away all your sin and allow us the freedom to live as we please without any sort of repercussions or any sort of consequences. The problem with this is that the Bible very clearly teaches that God is more than just a God of love, that he is holy and he is just. And Romans chapter 5 very clearly states that we were God's enemies needing to be reconciled, needing to have atonement through the death of Jesus Christ. And the only way we are enemies with God is if he is a holy and a just God. 
and that we have violated that standard of holiness. And we have. Every time we sin, we have violated God's holiness. And because we were born in sin, guess what? We were born as enemies of God. And it is because of God's holiness, as shocking as it may seem, it is because of God's holiness that we can actually know that God loves us. Because God didn't just sweep our sin under the rug or turn a blind eye to it completely. Because his holiness required sin to be paid for, God sent Jesus Christ to be the substitute for man and to make atonement for our sin. That is how true love is demonstrated. God gave us the greatest display of love when he sent us his son to die in our place, to offer himself as the atonement for our sin, to make reconciliation possible through faith in him. Again, verse number 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, not by our works, not by our efforts, not by our intellect, not by our strength, not by any other means, but by the death of Jesus Christ, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, the Bible says. This is how true love is demonstrated. God gave us the greatest display of love when he sent Jesus Christ to offer himself as the atonement for our sin to make reconciliation possible through faith in him. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Listen to what these verses have to say about God's love. It says, In this, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, that he turned a blind eye towards sin, that he swept it up. No, that's not what it says. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, it was out of God's holiness that love Genuine, sincere, real love was manifested toward us. Not in God abandoning his holiness and simply turning a blind eye to our sin. But God's love for us is never really in doubt, is it? I've never met anyone that doesn't think that God loves them. Even the people that are completely way off base, they're willing to admit that God is, God is love. God's love is really never in doubt. It's our love for God that is in question. In Romans chapter 8, in verse number 7, it tells us, it says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The natural human mind, the Bible says, is at odds with God. And it honestly comes out pretty clear with our natural hostility towards God. Now, we would never actually say this, but what we're telling God with our actions and how we live our lives from day to day is that God is not worthy of our complete devotion. Tell me I'm wrong. I'll be the first to admit that I do not give God the devotion that he deserves. I struggle with this every single day. This is expected from unbelievers. But Christians struggle with this way too much. We struggle to worship Christ without being selfish. We treat prayer often like it's a burden. 
Our natural tendency is to flee from God's presence as much as possible. That is why even attending church is difficult. We look for reasons why we can't be a church. And we look at it more as an inconvenience than the joy that it really should be. Even when we're in church, we struggle at times to pay attention or even stay awake. We let God's word kind of bounce off our minds like a basketball off of a backboard. Our natural attitude towards God is one of indifference. We don't think we need him, and thus we don't really care about him. And that may sound maybe innocent enough, but such an attitude of indifference actually puts us in a position of hostility. Think about what your life would be like if you were completely indifferent toward the laws of the land, laws of the government. Think about what it would be like if you don't feel like any of the laws of our state apply to you and that you don't need to live according to what they require. How fast would you get in trouble? You would quickly find that your position of indifference, well, it doesn't apply to me because don't they know who I am? So you go on and you ignore the speed limit signs. You ignore laws about stealing. You ignore laws about murder and fill in the blank. You ignore them all because you're indifferent to all the laws of our state and of the land. Well, you're going to reach a point that you quickly find your position of indifference is actually a position of, of hostility. Because you're eventually going to get arrested and thrown in prison for violating these laws. And guess what? It's no different with God. And yet we live completely thinking that we're indifferent to God and all of his laws that he set up. And we think that we're going to get away without any sort of consequences and without any sort of repercussions. You may be indifferent towards God, but that doesn't mean that you're safe. Every day that unbelievers live for yourself and you're living in opposition to God, you're living as an enemy of God. The truth is that God stands as the biggest threat to our sinful desires. We're naturally opposed to God. And no amount of persuasion can ever influence us to love God. We're born with this disdain of God and His very existence would seemingly, we would seemingly do anything to rid the universe of it. Now, if the roles were reversed, think about this for a moment. If the roles were reversed and God's life was held in our hands, God would not live longer than 10 seconds. We would not only ignore God, we'd most likely destroy him. And this accusation may seem a bit excessive until we take a closer look at what happened when God came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't just killed. He was brutally murdered by malicious people. And let's be honest, if it was entirely up to his enemies, Christ would have been killed long before he was actually going to the cross. They didn't just call for him to be killed. They called for him to be killed in the most severe manner, to be killed as the most heinous criminal to ever live. We know that it was Christ's humanity that was put to death upon that cross. But what God was doing was really exposing the true nature of the human heart when he sent his only begotten son to the cross. God was making himself physically known to the world of man. And man not only spit in the face of God, but brutally killed God's only son. If God had allowed man to have the final say on Christ's eternal life, Christ would still be dead. 
If man was allowed to hold God's life in our hands, God would not only be absent from heaven, God would also be dead. So it's really not as excessive as we might think to suggest that we would destroy God if the roles were reversed. We might object and we might say that we love God and that things would be different with us as opposed to the Jews of the New Testament who called for his crucifixion. We might suggest that we have reconciliation today and we have experienced life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that we're friends with God and we're not enemies with him and that it would be completely different. And all of these would be true for the believer, that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we're no longer enemies to God, but would it really be any different? We may be saved, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect. We still battle a sinful heart every single day. There is still a portion of our lives that takes absolutely no delight in God. I don't care how long you've been saved. Most Christians today are content with a level of compromise where we accept all of the truths of God in the Bible, all the demonstrations of God's divinity and His power, but still find acceptable occasions to give into our flesh and those things that are clearly against God. Basically, we're okay knowing that some areas in our lives are not as they should be. We know all about the fact that God is holy. We know that Christ went to the cross on our behalf, took our sin, was buried, and rose again on the third day from the grave. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God has saved us. We even claim to love God. We tell others that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We do all these things which are good, but we see no need to change things in our own lives. The failure of this modern type of Christianity is the failure to understand the holiness of God. If more Christians truly understood this one area, the holiness of God, there would be immense changes that are seen in the church and in the world. When we understand the character of God, and we get to catch a glimpse of God's holiness, then and only then do we begin to understand the depths of our sin and the depths of our helplessness. The only reason that we're alive today, the only reason that we're alive today is by the grace of God. We don't live and have our being through our own strength. We're physically and we're spiritually impotent apart from the merciful and the graceful hand of God. We may not like to acknowledge God's justice or acknowledge, acknowledge God's wrath and his holiness, but until we realize that it is only because of him that we exist, we will never come to appreciate what has been done for us through his matchless grace. Even though the point of Jonathan Edwards' sermon was not to point out the intense fires of hell, we cannot help but be thankful to God who holds us and rescues us from that eternal damnation. Despite what we might think, the hands of God that daily and eternally sustain us are gracious hands. So then, how can we love a holy God? Well, the simplest answer would be to say that we can't. How could we? Loving God is beyond any of our own ability. The only kind of God that we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God. Unless we're born of the Spirit of God, unless God first sheds His love on our hearts, unless God first intervenes with His grace to change our hearts, we will never love Him. 
Without God, we would do nothing, nothing at all of righteousness. Without God, we would be immediately doomed to everlasting damnation. We can only love God because God first loved us. When Christ saves us, we're spiritually awakened. The Bible says that we have been raised from spiritual death unto spiritual life. But we're still battling our flesh every single day. And at times we walk around as if we're spiritually dead. As we grow in deeper knowledge of God, we gain a greater sense of dependence upon his grace. The more we grow in the knowledge of God, the more we know that God is altogether worthy of all of our praise. The more we learn of God, the more we fear him and have reverence for him. We love him because we see how much he loves us and all that he has done for us for now and for all eternity. We rejoice in his amazing grace, for we realize it is the reason that we're alive and that we're able to rejoice in him in the first place. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of who we were before your grace saved us. Thank you, Lord, for the need of justification for peace and for the fact that you have made it all possible through your son, Jesus Christ, and faith in him. Lord, I pray for each one of us here today. There may be some here this morning that do not know you as your personal Lord and Savior. Lord, that do not know you as the Redeemer, as a justifier of the ungodly. There may be here this morning, Lord, whose current position has them as, as enemies of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction to the hearts of those that are unbelieving. And I pray, Lord, that you would present them with the truth and the reality of their condition, that they are literally inches and a breath away from hell. And that the only reason they have not fallen and plummeted into the depths of hell is because your good pleasure and mercy has allowed them to continue to exist today. Help them to realize their need for salvation today and not put it off at a time more convenient, but to realize that today is the day of salvation. May they throw themselves at the mercy of you and receive you and your son Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation and have their lives eternally changed as they're adopted into your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning as we close our worship together, we're going to sing.